Am I on? Yes, no, yes, no, testing. All right, we're good. All right, great. Ollie and Sven walked into an establishment. Typically, you would say a bar, but I realize I'm in church. Uh, so they walked into an establishment, and the uh, waiter behind the counter uh, greeted them and sees that they're celebrating something. They're whooping and hollering. They're all excited. And so bartender can't help but ask, what are you guys celebrating? And Ollie says, 51 days. And bartender's thinking, 51 days? Like, was one of them in the hospital for 51 days? Or, you know, did like, uh, they accomplish something, you know, in 51 days? Or like, what's the big deal about 51 days? So the bartender can't help but ask. And Sven says, the box said three to five years, but we finished that puzzle in only 51 days. Now, if you are a first-time guest, my name is Aaron, and I normally don't start off with uh, really lame jokes like that, but I heard that one last Thursday, and it was actually not the first time I've heard it. Our very own Randy Albright has told me that one before. Um, But we all laugh at it and kind of clap because it sounds silly. We all know that if it's a puzzle that says three to five years, it's for three to five-year-olds. And so for them to take 51 days, I mean, it should have taken them like 51 seconds. You know, so there's the joke. We'd laugh at their foolishness. But after I heard that joke on Thursday, it got me thinking. All of us have our Ollie and Spin moments. That a moment where you kind of open your mouth and you end up revealing your own foolishness. I remember one time back my sophomore year of high school, I'm in driver's ed class, and this particular day we're learning how to drive on gravel roads. When you grow up in Iowa, that's something you have to learn how to do. And this particular gravel road had some new gravel put on it, so it's fairly loose. Well, I'm in the back seat, my driving partner's driving, and our instructor is in the front passenger seat. And as we're driving down this road outside of Shenandoah, Iowa, the car slips and slides just a little bit on the loose gravel. And I decide to speak up and just share my wisdom with everyone, a comment just to draw everyone in, and I say... Man, if it's this slippery in the spring, imagine how bad this is in the winter. Now, many of you are thinking to yourself, okay. But in that moment, I, looking at, I see my, uh, the, the, my partner driver and my instructor kind of look at each other, and I realize I've just said something stupid. And my instructor very gently helps me understand that if rain falls and, and turns to ice, that as it lands on a gravel road, the rocks would actually keep it broken up and would actually create like a tread, which actually makes your gravel road safer in the winter than it would be on a regular paved road where the ice would just be smooth and you're far more likely to slide off the road. We've all had that moment. The moment where you open your mouth and insert your foot. You know, where, where you, you prove the old adage true. I I tried to prove it was Mark Twain, but I couldn't find out that Mark Twain actually said it. But you know the adage, the the saying that better to remain silent and thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. In the backseat of that car, I removed all doubt. And I suspect you've had your moment too. Maybe it was when some people were talking sports. Maybe it was when people were talking theology. Maybe someone was talking about car repair or the latest gossip about from Hollywood. Like they were talking about something and you thought you understood and you began to speak up and suddenly as everyone's looking at you, you realize, oh, it looks like I'm sucking on my toes right now. Today in the scriptures, we get to see the Apostle Paul suffer from foot and mouth disease. He he speaks up in a moment when he doesn't understand what is going on and he reveals his 
foolishness. But the problem is, as we're going to look at his foolishness, I suspect that it's also going to reveal, reveal some of ours. Today, we're going into a very famous story in Christendom. It's known as the Transfiguration. And many people, when they read this story, they get to see Jesus transfigured into kind of his heavenly appearance. He's going to shine bright white like he had just been scrubbed with the best crest toothpaste in the world. Like there's nothing like it that you've ever seen. And we get to see it. And most people just stop right there and go, wow, we get to see a glimpse of his glory. And then we move on. And just to move on actually keeps us in our foolishness. That instead, what we need to do today is peer a little deeper and discover that there's three elements in the story that actually show us Jesus isn't just displaying his glory. He's actually showing he is completely set apart. He is distinguished that there has never been anyone else like him. So my hope for you today is that when you walk out those doors or you log off from being online, that you will not just see, wow, Jesus glowed bright white. That instead, you'll walk out worshiping Jesus like never before. So as we get ready to go into the scriptures, let's pray. So Heavenly Father, uh, I ask that you do what only you can do. Uh, I realize that I am just one man who has spent this past week studying your scriptures and trying to put together some sort of message that, that I think your people need to hear. But God, I realize that as I talk to, to this group in, in person or online or, or anyone who's listening uh, to the podcast afterwards, that, that all of them are at different spots in their, their, their faith, in their emotions. Uh, some are doing great. Some have been following you a long time. Some are struggling this week. So, some may be doubting right now your existence or your goodness. And, and some listening to this may not even truly know you at all. And so that's why I ask that you do what only you can do. That you would be the one to speak to our hearts. You would be the one who would speak to our minds. You would be the one to help us see Jesus vividly portrayed. And that we would walk out of here, not because we were wowed by someone's words or because a certain song was sang, sung, uh, that, that we would walk out of here focusing fully upon Jesus. Because God, he is who we need in our lives. So help us today to see him, to see how much you love us, to see how distinguished he is, and that we would sing his praises from today and forevermore. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, if you brought a Bible, I'm going to invite you to open it up to the book of Mark. We're headed to chapter 9 today. If you are a first-time guest with us and you don't have a Bible, don't stress. We're going to be putting the scripture up on the screen, so you're going to be able to read right along with us. But I say this every week, and so I'll say it to you, our first-time guests. If you don't have a Bible, we want you to get one. It, it doesn't matter to us if it's a digital Bible on your phone or if it's a paper copy like I'm using today. We just want you to have one. So download a Bible to your phone or, or go to Walmart or go on ChristianBook.com. Order yourself a Bible. If you just can't afford a paper Bible and that's what you want, we actually have some high-quality Bibles. Normally, when there's not a pandemic going on, we've got Bibles sitting out, and people can just take those and make those their everyday Bible. Because we believe that by studying the Scriptures here today on Sundays, it makes it a little easier to read it on Monday. We want you in these Scriptures. Uh, we believe that what our world right now needs are people who will love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. And so what better way to become more like Jesus than to read about him, to study him, to see how he lived and loved. So we want you to have a Bible and to use it. So let's head to Mark 9. We finished up with the verse 1 last week. So that means we're ready for verse 2, the famous story of the transfiguration. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. 
And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, uh, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he, Jesus, charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, well, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Today's story takes place up on top of a mountain. There's a lot of famous stories that take place uh, in the Bible on mountains. And in this particular one, Jesus has brought only three of his disciples. Not all 12, just three, Peter, James, and John. And when they get to the top, suddenly Jesus just starts glowing white like a million light bulbs. And suddenly these two other characters appear. And, and I don't know how, but somehow Peter, James, and John realize it's Moses and Elijah. And, and what we do is we get caught up in the story. Maybe some of you grew up in church. You know, if you're old like me, you know, you had the flannel graph put up. You know, you, you watch the little video. And they focus on Jesus glowing white, Moses and Elijah. And then the story ends. In the scene, we're done. Move on to the next story. But to do so, that's when we remain in our foolishness. Because there's a lot going on here that actually shows us that Jesus wasn't just like powerful and divine and glowing white. That he's actually being shown in the story to be distinguished and completely set apart from anyone else. And I hope today you'll see how it actually leads us to worship him. So I want to look at three elements in the story that point to Jesus that show us just how distinguished he is. And the first element that I want to point out to you is Elijah. The appearance of Elijah helps us see just how distinguished and set apart Jesus is. When uh, Peter, James, and John are with Jesus walking down from the mountain, and they're still trying to figure out, what did we just see? Like, what was that? And, and Jesus starts walking down the mountain. He's like, hey, guys, um, you can't tell anyone what you just saw. Not, not until after the Son of Man rises from the dead. And they're asking themselves, like, what does that mean? Rise from the dead. Like, is this like another one of his metaphors? I, like, this just doesn't make sense. And we saw last week how Peter tried to correct Jesus about this whole being killed stuff, and he got in trouble. He got called Satan. So Peter's not about to bring this back up again. So Peter, the talker, is trying to think to himself, like, whoa, what do we say? This is kind of awkward silence. He's walking down the mountain, and I don't understand what's going on. So then he's like, oh, wait, I know. We just saw Elijah. Uh, that, that's the point of conversation. Hey, Jesus, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? To understand this, we've got to first look at who Elijah was. Elijah was a, a prophet. You can read about his life in the ending part of Second Kings and the first, I mean, the ending part of First Kings and the, the first half of Second Kings. And what really marks Elijah's ministry were his miracles. 
Uh, probably his most famous miracle was when he got into a spiritual battle, a prophecy battle, with these prophets of Baal. If you know rap artists, they can get into these rap battles. I guess this is what prophets do. You get into these, you know, spiritual battles. And, and so they, they decide to see which of their gods is real. Is, it, is Elijah God's Jehovah or, or is it Baal? And so these like 400 prophets of Baal, they, they erect this altar, they put a, a, a ram on it, but they're, they're supposed to call down fire upon it. And so they're dancing around and they're singing. They're actually cutting themselves with stone, trying to get their God's attention, and nothing happens. And then Elijah goes, okay, okay, that's enough, that's enough, my turn. So same thing, they've got the altar, they put the bull on top of it. But then he's like, you know what, let's just dig a big trench around it. And, you know, while we're at it, let's just not make this too easy for God. Let's throw a bunch of water. Let's just absolutely soak this thing. So, I mean, they saturate the area. I mean, the whole moat that they made is just filled with water. And then Elijah simply asks God, send the fire. The fire comes down. It consumes everything. But that wasn't his only miracle. He also helped out this widow. Uh, one time, her, you know, her husband's obviously passed away. And so all she has is a son. And her son dies. And Elijah helps raise her son from the dead. There's another part in the same widow. She has almost no food left. And Elijah asks her for some food. And she's like, hey, I, I've only got enough to make a meal for me and my son. And he says, you know what? Tell you what. Why don't you make me a, a, a cake with the little bit of grain and oil that you have? And I'll make sure that you guys never go without. And sure enough, their oil, every time she poured out of her jar, there was more oil. Every time she opened up the thing, there was more grain. He multiplied their food. And then probably one of the kind of funnest little uh, uh, miracles that he did was he tells the king of Israel, hey, you got to go that way. So he tells him to go. And, and so the king takes off in his chariot. And then Elijah runs and beats the king there. Like, look out, Usain Bolt. I mean, that has to be like the land record for running. Now, all of those things would set Elijah apart in, in Jewish lore. I mean, that, that right there would make him one of their great prophets. But that is not why Elijah's name was on the lips of the Jews. We actually talked about this a little bit last week, but this week I want to read it. This is why Elijah was talked about by the Jews. This comes from Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Those were the last words recorded in the, the Hebrew scriptures, what we Christians call the Old Testament. From that point on, God goes silent as far as it comes to the Holy Scriptures. It wasn't until 400 some years later when the Apostle Paul began to pin his letters to the church that God began to write more scriptures to help lead his people. And so the Jewish people clung to these words because they knew that if Elijah showed up, the Messiah wasn't far behind. These words were like to a farmer when he's in the middle of a drought. If he sees clouds in the distance, he has hope that it might bring rain. They kept their eyesight in the distance looking for Elijah because if they saw Elijah, the Messiah is about to come. Even to this day, the, the Jews, as they celebrate their annual Passover, their Seder meal, they leave a seat for Elijah, or they will leave the door cracked so that Elijah could come in. Some have even started adding a fifth cup to the meal. They call it Elijah's cup, so that if Elijah were to come in to take the seat, he would pick up that cup. No one else can drink from it. And then when Elijah drinks from his cup, we know the Messiah is on his way. Well, Peter, James, and John are good little Jewish boys. 
They know Malachi 4, 5, and 6. They know that Elijah is supposed to come and then the Messiah will, will appear. However, last week we saw Peter identify Jesus as the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. So that means Peter, James, and John met Jesus first. And now they're on this mountain where Jesus starts gleaming white. And now they see Elijah. So wait, are, are they wrong? Because they saw Jesus first and Elijah second. So they ask him, so why do the scribes say that Elijah should come first? And Jesus says, oh, he, he's already shown up. Now, Mark doesn't let us know this, but if you go to the book of Matthew to chapter 17 and you see Matthew's account of this, you'll see right after Jesus says, oh yeah, Elijah came and they authorities had their way with him. It says that the disciples suddenly realized he's talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the Elijah. In fact, if you start comparing John the Baptist and Elijah with one another, you see a lot of similarities. It, it, you can go into uh, uh, the Old Testament and you see that Elijah wore camel hair and he tied it around his waist with like this leather strap. Suddenly you go into uh, the Gospels, you read about John the Baptist, he's dressed almost the exact same way. When you look at the ministry of Elijah, you see a lot of it takes place out in the wilderness. And suddenly you realize John the Baptist spent most of his ministry out in the wilderness. But then as you look at the way that they like preach, just the way they conduct themselves, their personality, the air about them, there's a lot of similarities. And Jesus says, no, John the Baptist, he was the Elijah to come. He's the fulfillment of Malachi 4, 5, and 6. He did come first and he prepared the way for me. And so the appearance of Elijah on top of that mountain is just one of the elements that points to Jesus and says, yep, he's not just another prophet, just another miracle worker. He isn't someone who just multiplies grain and oil. He isn't someone who just helps raise kids from the dead. He isn't someone who does these miracles. He is set apart. He is the Messiah. He's the one that Elijah points to. So that's the first element. The second element that I think helps distinguish Jesus is Moses. If uh, last week we uh, talked about the goat, the greatest of all time. Well, I think if, if a bunch of Jewish people got together and were talking about their Old Testament prophets, the, the prophets of the Hebrew scriptures, who was the goat, Moses' name would probably be in the conversation. Like someone would probably argue for Abraham because that's who God used to start the Jewish people. Someone might, you know, argue for King David because, you know, he slew the giant. He led the people. There, there was none like David. The Messiah was supposed to come out of the line of David. And, and David was a man after God's own heart. But someone would inevitably say, oh, now, guys, like, Abraham's great, David's great, but it's Moses. I, I mean, it's, it's got to be Moses. I mean, because Moses is the one that God uses to bring the people out of slavery in Egypt. They were in slavery for 400 years, and it's Moses who brings them out. And then Moses had to put up with the people for 40 years out in the wilderness. Do you know how hard that was? It's amazing the guy did not end up in an insane asylum. That shows his greatness right there. But then, probably the greatest argument for his inclusion as the goat of Judaism is Exodus 33, verse 11. It says this, Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. You don't see God relate to anyone else in the Old Testament in quite the same way. It just seems that Moses was a little bit set apart. <laughs> That's why... I think Moses had the audacity to do this just a few verses later. This is still in Exodus 13, headed down to verse 18. Moses said, 
please show me your glory. And Moses has already seen God do the 10 plagues in Egypt. He's already seen God part a Red Sea where they could then bring the people through. He, he's seen God providing them with manna. I mean, God has done all sorts of incredible things. And yet, he still has the audacity to say to God, show me your glory. And then God says, yes, verse 19. Uh, and he said, I will make my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Now listen, God just defines what his name means. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So God's saying, yeah, Moses, I like you. So yeah, I'm going to let my glory pass before you. I'm going to show my grace to you. I'm going to show mercy to you. I'm going to let you see me. However, notice verse 20. But God said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. We're going to come back to that a little later. But I want you to see that Moses was distinguished from all the other Jews, not just of his time, but kind of throughout all of Judaism. He had this intimate relationship with God so much that he actually says, God, I want to see your glory. God says, all right, I'll let you see it. So Moses is distinguished. He's, he's one of the greatest of their time. That is why the Jews took part, paid particular close attention when Moses said this, this is from Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now, like most prophecies that God gives, I, I don't know, I should say most, like many of the prophecies that God gives, it had a dual nature to it. Oftentimes, God will give a prophecy in the Old Testament, and he will fulfill it in the time of the people who are listening, or at least within a generation, so they can see God's truthfulness, his power, his ability to see the future, his faithfulness. But then it gets fulfilled later as well. This is one of those prophecies. We see it first fulfilled in the man of Joshua. Joshua was kind of like Moses' right-hand guy. And after Moses led the people for years, he leads them up to the, the uh, banks of the Jordan River, but because of a prior sin, God says Moses is not going to have the privilege and pleasure of taking the people into that promised land. Instead, it's Joshua. And it's the Joshua that the people need to listen to. Because Joshua leads them in. He helps lead their armies. They end up defeating many of the enemies. And they establish themselves as a nation in what became known as the promised land, where Israel is today. But it was also fulfilled by Jesus. The, the, the ancient Jews were sensed that this was a messianic prophecy that it wasn't just about joshua but it was about some sort of prophet who would come a prophet who would lead them out from underneath some sort of empire who would be over them and lead them into a promised land that is why the people at the time of jesus before he came were keeping their eyes open for elijah because they needed a messiah who would come and rescue them from rome who would lead them out from underneath the tyranny of rome and reestablish israel as their own sovereign nation but Jesus wasn't there just to help establish them as a geopolitical power. Jesus had far more important things to do. He was that prophet, the new and better Moses, 
because he led us from underneath the tyranny of sin. He led us out of slavery to sin into the promised land of a relationship with God. He has given us heaven. It's the greatest thing anyone could ever do. He is the true and better Moses. That is why Moses' appearance on this mountain is saying, Jesus is distinguished. You think Moses is distinguished? There's none like Jesus. Because Moses could go in and talk with God, but Jesus is God. Moses led us out of slavery to Egypt. Jesus leads us out of slavery to sin. And then there's the added benefit that when that cloud comes down and surrounds them, Peter, James, and John hear God's voice. And God says, this is my son, listen to him. And what was it Moses said? That God would raise up a prophet, a leader like him, from among the brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. And God is confirming, this is the one. This is the Moses 2.0, the new and better Moses, the true and better Moses. My son, Jesus, there is no one like him. He is distinguished. So we've got Elijah pointing to Jesus, and now we have Moses pointing to Jesus. But then we have one more. And this one is actually the one that probably excites me the most. And it actually comes in the foolishness of Peter. If you still have your Bible open there to Mark 9, go head down to verse 5. Now, I want you to realize as, as we read this, that Mark's record tradition holds that he received this from Peter. Right? So uh, imagine, Mark has gone to the prison where Peter is being held. Right? Peter, the tradition holds that he ends up being crucified upside down. All right, he, he said he wasn't worthy to be crucified like his Lord and Savior. So if they're going to kill him, at least do it upside down. And, and so before the guards come and get him, Mark shows up, and he's, he's trying to get this from, from Peter. That's why the first part of Mark is, is so rapid fire. It just moves really rapidly because at any moment, the guards could come and take Peter and go and kill him. But the, the guards don't come quite yet, and that's why the story starts slowing down just a little bit. Peter starts giving more story, and I can just imagine Peter going, oh, Okay, I, I'm going to tell you about the transfiguration. Uh, Jesus took me and James and John up on top of this mountain. And oh, okay, I'm gonna, it was crazy. Like Jesus just starts glowing white. Like you couldn't even bleach someone's clothes that white. It, it was absolutely amazing. And then two people show up. And I don't know how, but I suddenly just realized this is Elijah and Moses. And, but, but then, okay, this is embarrassing. But like I didn't know what to do. And so I just started talking. And here's what I said. Verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, I'm teaching from the English Standard Version today, the ESV. It's what I typically teach from. Uh, you notice it used the word tents. But many of the translations that I saw this week, they use the word shelter. And, and that's accurate. Another one used the word dwelling. Another one used memorial. But shelter seemed to be the most common word. But I, I learned that the Greek is really the word tabernacle. Now, why don't they then translate it as tabernacle? Because I think our Western English minds don't really know what a tabernacle is. We see that word back in the Old Testament with Moses, but we don't really know what it is. Well, a tabernacle was a tent, a, a, a structure that could be put up fairly quickly, but it was a place of worship. It would allow you to come, and it was a, a way for you to say, here is where God's presence is. 
In fact, here's a, a picture of a replica of the original tabernacle. In, in chapter 33, which we read from, where Moses talks to God and sees God's glory, right after that, he comes down from the mountain, and by chapter 35, they are collecting the items to go and build the first tabernacle. So they begin to construct this according to what God says, and God says he's going to fill it with his glory. So this was the place of worship. But remember, God told Moses, no one can come into my presence and see my face and live. So in other words, the tabernacle, in a sense, let you come into the presence of God and live, that you wouldn't die. That in a sense, it was there to protect you. But I want to point out a few things in the story. Peter, in this moment, in verse 5, just begins speaking because he realizes something is going on. And he doesn't fully know what he's saying, but I think he's unintentionally giving us a clue. Because you see, suddenly they're here with Jesus, and they see the curtain between the reality of earth and the reality of heaven be pulled apart. So now they're seeing Jesus in his divine glory, in his divinity. And then a shadow, I mean, a, a, a like cloud, the mist, a fog comes and surrounds them. And out of that comes the voice of God. So this means they are fully in the presence of God. So I think in this moment, Peter is unintentionally saying, protect us. We need a tabernacle. Because I realize right now we're in the presence of God. This is holy. But no one can come into the presence of God to see God's face and live. We need protection. And so he is terrified. We often see this reaction in the scripture when someone kind of comes into contact with God's grandness. For instance, in uh, Isaiah chapter 6, uh, the prophet Isaiah is having a vision. And in his vision, he's at the temple and it says that he sees the train of God's robe fill the temple. Do you know what the train of a robe is? It's like the extra part that swoops down behind you. We're talking like a really long hymn. Like just the hymn of God's robe filled the temple. Like God himself didn't even come in because God couldn't even be contained in the temple. God is that glorious, that grand, that big. It was just the train of his robe. And yet Isaiah sees just the train and he says, woe is me. Like, he is so blown away by just the train of God's robe. He thinks, that's it, I'm done for. I am a sinful man. I cannot come into the presence of such a holy God. This is what Peter and James and John are going through. Suddenly, they're hearing God's voice. They're seeing Jesus like they haven't seen him before. They're surrounded by some of the greats of their faith, Elijah and Moses. This is it. They're dead. They need protection. They need a tabernacle. And then suddenly, verse 8 happens. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. This is the type of verse that we skip. <laughs> really, that verse is kind of boring. I mean, we just saw Jesus glowing white. We just met two of the old greats from the Old Testament, Elijah and Moses. Like, this was awesome, and oh, now it's done. All right, let, let's move on. You see, that's the problem. That's why we remain in our foolishness. Because it's actually in verse 8 that we begin to see the power of the story. Here's what I want you to re realize. Peter, James, and John 
just were surrounded by this cloud. They just heard God's voice, and they just saw Jesus in his full glory, and they saw his face. They didn't just see his back. Moses only saw the back of God. And here these three disciples see Jesus, God the Son, they see his face, and they live. This means that Jesus is their tabernacle. Jesus himself said, he is the way, the truth, and life. No one can come to the Father. No one can get to God except through me. Which means he is the protection. It is through Jesus we can come to worship God. It is through him that we can come and actually see God's face and not die. Okay, but, but wait, Aaron, time out. Um, I thought God loved us. Like, why, why would God kill us for, for coming into his presence? Back in Exodus 33, when Moses says, I'm going to see your glory, and God's like, all right, I'll, I'll pass by, but I, I'm only going to let you see my back. It isn't because if Moses suddenly looks at God's face, God gets mad. It's not like he, he looks at him and goes, wait, you looked at me. Oh, that's it, I'm killing you. No, it's actually out of protection. It's out of love. Because God realizes that even though he has sort of chosen Moses, pulled him out from among the people, set him up as this great leader, he's going to send his son to be a, a leader, kind of like Moses. He knows Moses is a sinful human being, and a sinful human being cannot come into the presence of this perfect, pure, holy God. So when God says, I'm going to take you up on this mountain, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to cover you with my hand, it isn't because God's embarrassed and having a bad hair day. It's because God loves him. He's protecting him. So that means Jesus is our tabernacle to protect us. And he is God's hand to shelter us. He goes to the cross and absorbs our sin from us. And then he takes away our stain, he takes away our earthliness, our sinfulness, and we suddenly become white. We take on his righteousness, his goodness, and that is what allows us into the presence of God. And we don't just see the back of God as his glory fades away. We get to see his face because of Jesus. I think when Peter, James, and John are walking down the mountain, after that moment, realizing we were just in the presence of God and we are alive, I think of that moment, they worshiped. They were filled with awe. I mean, they've already seen Jesus stop a storm. And when we studied that passage out of Mark, we saw how that pointed back to Jesus' divinity. They've seen him raise the dead. Only God has authority over life and death like that. They've already been convinced, as we saw last week, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the king of all kings. But now, it has gone from just what they know and a little bit of what they've experienced, it is now a reality. Jesus is God. And yet they don't have it all figured out. I mean, as they're walking down that mountain, they're still asking him questions. They're hearing Jesus teach them, saying, yeah, the Son of Man must suffer and die. And it doesn't make sense. Yeah, but he'll rise again from three, day, three days later. What does that mean? 
And yet, even though they don't have it all figured out, they still worship. Because he is the one that Elijah says is the Messiah. He is the one who is the true and better Moses. He is the tabernacle that protects us and allows us to come and worship the one and only God. See, sometimes I think we approach God wanting certain things from him. We demand things a certain way in a certain time. We come to him in prayer asking for these things. Sometimes what we just want from God is for him to make sense. And sometimes out of his mercy, he gives us that gift. He answers our prayer. He gives us the job. He gives us the spouse. He gives us the child. He needs those things. But sometimes he doesn't. That is because he is a God who is gracious. He is a God who is full of mercy. And he's already given you the most gracious, compassionate, merciful thing he could do. He's given you Jesus. So the the days that you feel like, I I don't understand what God's doing, you look to the cross. And you see that through the cross of Jesus dying on the cross, your sin is absorbed, and you now have access to God. What What more do you need? Yes, I will pray with you for the job. Yes, I will pray that God helps you know how much you are loved and you would sense that in human relationships. Yes, I will pray for your health. I pray you will recover. But most of all, what I pray is that you will see Jesus for who he truly is. You'll see just how much he loves you. And he loves you so much, he went to the cross to be your tabernacle, to protect you from the awesome holiness of God so that he could cleanse you of all unrighteousness and allow you to come fully into the presence of his Father. So may you not just walk out of here today seeing Jesus as glowing white. May you not just see him as a miracle worker like Elijah. May you not just see him as like a a great leader like Moses. May you see him as the Son of God who is your tabernacle, who is God's hand over you, protecting you because he loves you. And may that lead you to worship. That's why today, I don't have like five practical points for you. I I, I can't say, okay, so here's what your Monday should now look like. Really, all I have for you today is Jesus. And so that's today, we're just going to sing. We're just going to worship. We're just going to put the attention on Jesus. Now, if, if you were not a follower of Jesus yet, what you need is Jesus. I, I, I'm going to encourage you to give your life to him right now. Most people, when they realize the truth of the gospel, realize that Jesus went to a cross to die for their sins, to take away their sins so that we could now come into the presence of God, they mark that moment with prayer. They, they typically begin to say to God, I, I confess my sin. I realize I am not worthy of you. And yet, Jesus, because you gave your life for me, I now give my life to follow you. And so during this next song, may you may give that prayer to God giving your life over to him. But if you're already a follower of Jesus, during this next song, may you just bask in the love of God. May you realize Jesus is your tabernacle. It is through him you can come and worship and you are protected. May you realize he is God's hand who is over you so that you are not obliterated. Instead, you are washed clean. May you just come and worship him. So what we're going to do is we're just going to worship through song. And then after this song, we're going to go into communion. And we're going to take those elements and we're going to use those to draw our attention to God. 
remembering that, that is, the bread is his body, which was sh- broken for us. His, the cup is his blood, which was shed for us. We're going to just go to him saying, you are my tabernacle. You are God's hand. You are the one I worship. There was none like you. You are distinguished. And we're just going to give him all the attention and glory. So let us sing. Then let us go to communion. And then we will conclude our service. So let's stand and give this to Jesus.